0: Let me pray as we begin and turn to God's word this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Simon walked us through one of my favorite passages in the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah 8 and 9. I actually think that's sort of the heart of the book of Nehemiah in many ways. Uh, What we heard about was that the wall had been completed, the people had been counted in the city of Jerusalem, and then they read the book of the law, which had been found by Ezra. The story of Moses they read aloud. And these people who had been exiled, who had been estranged from God's word and God's law, they encounter God's word, and and, and, and the text tells us that they were cut to the heart. They hear it fresh and they enter into this spontaneous communal confession. The Spirit's moving in such a way that they're turning to one another and going, here's how I've sinned. Let me confess my sin. God, let us join together in confessing our sins. And they are convicted together. If you you need to go back and read that passage, do it. Nehemiah 8 and 9, go listen to Simon's words because really this is a spiritual high point. For the people of God in many ways in this rebuilding effort that we're reading about this summer in Nehemiah. And now we turn to chapter 10. And we ask the question, if we're supposed to be rebuilders, right? And we're hearing God's word and we're responding to God's word in a fresh new way. How do we stay in that place? How did the people of God turn that conviction and that confession into sustainable action? And how might we do the same? That might be a question that you have. It's a question I get all the time. How do I, how do I stay in a spiritually fervent place, right? How do, I, how do I tend to what God's doing in my life? Especially, I hear this question after uh, spiritually vigorous experiences. Maybe it's a youth ministry retreat. We watch the junior hires or high schoolers come back from a retreat, or children after a week of camp. I know many kids are returning from camp in these weeks. Or maybe it's an adult who who finds healing in Jesus after a long time of brokenness or grief. Or maybe it's when someone experiences a a life event that shakes them to the core, like a a near-death experience or a difficult diagnosis, or even something wonderful like the birth of a child. And they're drawn into this beautiful presence of God through the person of Jesus, and they experience his nearness, his presence in a new way. What we often call these things as spiritual highs, right? Spiritual high points in our life. And I'm guessing that if you're sort of reflecting on your own faith story, you can probably think of some of those spiritually high points in your life, those points where you go, I felt the nearness of God. Maybe, Lord willing, some of you are like, I'm experiencing that right now. I'm in a season where I'm in this really high point of of nearness with God. And we want to know, how do we stay in that place and not fall off from a place like that, right? And we're not unique in this. Actually, all men and women in scripture that we read about, they have similar sorts of peaks and valleys, these seasons where they're really experiencing the presence of God and then difficult times as well. Think of Abraham. I, I tried my hand at sort of charting this this week. He has this early sort of high point of hearing God's voice called to him. He would have had no concept of a monotheistic God, and yet God speaks to him and says, go to Canaan, and he's like, okay, I'll go and do it. He obeys. and 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 we find that he has this He's, he has this covenant that's established with this God. I would say that's a pretty high spiritual point in your life, right? When God establishes a covenant with you, that's pretty amazing. And then he experiences famine. And he puts his wife in danger twice in sort of a despicable way. And then he experiences infertility until he's 90 years old and this miracle happens where Sarah gives birth to his son Isaac, a high point in his life, right? Right? until he's led to sacrifice that son on Mount Moriah, a low point. But right at the last minute, God provides a ram instead for the sacrifice, another high point for Abraham. So we see these high and low points in his story, right? Or how about Jacob? A little different looking chart. His early life is, is marked by deception and deceit. He has this controlling and manipulating mother. He, he's in bad relationship with his with his brother Esau and spends years on the run from Esau. Fourteen of those years, he ends up in conscripted service. Seven of them to work for a wife, and they gave him the wrong wife. Pretty tough. That's like kind of a low point, right? And then later on in life, by the river Jabbok, he encounters the living God. He gets in this holy wrestling match with God. And immediately after that, he's reconciled with his brother Esau that he is wrong. Again, we see high and low points. And I tried my hand at just a few others, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon. If we were going to kind of chart their stories, what would they look like? Do you see a theme here? Do any of these look like straight lines to you? Not a single one of them, right? They're kind of all over the place. Maybe this week as an exercise, I could encourage you to take, you know, 15, 20 minutes and, and actually chart your own story too to see what that looks like. What do the peaks and valleys sort of look like in your own spiritual journey? Here's my chart that I made this week. Again, without going into too much detail, it's, it's kind of all over the place, right? And this is really natural. It's, it's not a, a sign of a lack of faith to have these ups and downs in our spiritual life. It's part of being human. But I also know that I look at my chart and I go, it didn't have to be quite so wild as that at times, right? There are things that I could have done that could have sustained those spiritually fervent times that I had or, or rebounded quicker from those real low points that I had those spiritually dry seasons. So I want to get back to that question. How do we do that? How do we sustain spiritual vibrancy in our lives? Well, this is where the lesson comes in from Nehemiah 10. So I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able for the scripture reading this morning. This is from Nehemiah 10. It's verses 28 through 39. The first 27 verses are just names. I'll get to that in a little bit. So we'll start at verse 28. I know that when we read in Nehemiah, especially some of these chapters, it's easy to be like, okay, I... This is a lot of details. I'm kind of zoning out. If it helps you, grab the, one of the red Bibles in front of you. Grab the Bible on your phone if you if it helps you to follow along. But I really want you to actively listen here to figure out what is what is the response of the people of God to sustain this spiritually vibrant place they found themselves in. Hear God's word this morning. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, The temple servants and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to adhere to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their kin, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in merchandise or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also lay upon ourselves the obligation to charge ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the rows of bread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed festivals, the sacred donations, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. We have also cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God by ancestral houses at appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our soil and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house and also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and our livestock, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests to the chamber of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our soil, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our rural towns. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the storerooms where the vessels of the sanctuary are, and where the priests that minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. We will not neglect the house of our God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So when I look back on my own faith journey, and I reflect on the many faith journeys that I've had the opportunity to enter into with many of you as a pastor, there's one kind of glaring reason why spiritual fervency falls off and is not sustained. And here it is. It's because we don't have a plan. We really don't have a plan to sustain a vibrant faith. I think most of us simply assume that whatever fervency we experience, whatever excitement we have, whatever spiritual high we're sort of caught up in, that's just going to carry us forward to the next vibrant experience, and that'll carry us forward to the next one. But the reality is we need a plan, and this is not like a Christian truism. Even secular society recognizes that this is true. Psychologist Tom Mua writes in an article here's the name of the article make a public commitment to your goals and work towards them every day that's the name of the article he writes this to be successful studies show people benefit from writing down their goals it's important to set specific objectives that include a timeline detailing exactly what you want to achieve and when you want to achieve it after running down your action plan it's essential to share it with other people publicly committing to pursuing positive outcomes is far more powerful than simply dreaming about doing something I'm not confident that this psychologist read Nehemiah 10 before he wrote this article but the name of the article which is again make a public commitment to your goals and work towards them every day that could be actually the title of Nehemiah chapter 10 right this is exactly what the Israelites do under Nehemiah's leadership they make a public commitment to the goals that they have made and then they come up with a plan to work out those goals to sustain those goals the text tells us that after the spiritual high of opening up God's word and crying out in confession that the leaders, the people, uh, the Levites, all sign their names on the dotted line saying that we're going to follow the law of Moses that's been read in our midst. In fact, that's verses 1 through 27 of this chapter. It's just the names of the people who signed on the dotted lines. They were committed not only privately but publicly. They're saying we're going to do this. And then verses 28 through 39, which I read for you, is what their plan is to actually sustain it. To sustain these commitments. So, what is their plan? What's their plan to sustain this vibrancy, these commitments? It's in two parts. So in verses 30 through 31, we get the first part of the plan, which is a commitment to personal and family or familial holiness. Verse 30 says, we're not going to give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So this is a commitment to not intermarry with non-Israelites. I want to be very careful when we talk about this. This is not racially motivated in the Old Testament. It's actually spiritually motivated. Throughout the Old Testament, we see actually the dangers of intermarriage for the Old Testament people of God because repeatedly what we see from King Solomon on is is when people intermarry with people who don't know Yahweh, the one true God, they inevitably Adopt their gods, their domestic gods, their idols, and their customs, and their cultures. So, a hallmark of personal holiness in the Old Testament is to make a commitment to both self and family that we're going to follow the Lord our God. We're not going to do anything that's going to lead us into idolatry. And then we read in verse 31, they say, if the peoples of the land bring merchandise or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we're not going to buy it on the Sabbath day or any other holy day and we're going to forego the crops on our seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So, in response to the law being read, they reinstitute a Sabbath day where they elect to abstain from work, they abstain from purchasing grain or anything else from non-Israelites on the Sabbath who are selling them, and they also say we're going to let our crops lie fallow every seventh year according to the law of Moses. Why is this an important part of the plan? Well, it's because... Sabbath keeping is a is a solemn command in Scripture, and uh, there's a command for those who work with the soil to, to give that soil a sabbatical, a rest. When we adopt Sabbath and sabbatical practices, along with the canceling of debts and the observation of Jubilee years, the Old Testament that sa- in the Old Testament that is a is a sign of trust in God. Trust that He's going to provide. Even in times when we could be productive, we can make more money, we could, we could, we could make better crops, we could, we could do more work, we're reminded that God is in control and that he's going to provide for us. So we see this dual thing, the rejection of intermarriage and, and Sabbath keeping. These are matters of personal and family and corporate holiness, saying we're pursuing God in these ways. We're pursuing God in these ways. The second part of the plan Personal holiness is the first one. The second one is sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. Verses 32 through 39 detail the people's commitments to offerings for the temple, for the Levites, both physical offerings, things like grain and meat and crops, but also financial tithing as well, much like we did earlier today. Since the house of God has been reinstituted as the common place for life together, not only will they, the people ensure that the required sacrifices are offered, but they're also going to supply it with wood so they can keep that altar warm right, and, and burning. And this is not some sort of dry legalism like a, a, a list of boxes that they have to check. Okay, we'll provide this and this and this. Instead, it's an indication that they recognize that the Lord has a claim over the entirety of their life, everything that they have. There's no part of their lives that God himself doesn't own. So they commit to give sacrificially of their children and their cattle and their produce and their wine and their oil. This includes financial giving. And though there's a little bit of mystery around the word tithe, exactly what it means, it does come from the root word of like a tenth, which most scholars believe is the, is the prescribed amount of financial giving, 10%. So this is a huge part of their plan, right? This giving, that they're going to commit to give things away that are of value to them. So when we put this together, what do we see? What is their plan to sustain the commitment that they've made, this fervency that they're experiencing? It's holiness and it's giving or sacrifice. They've written it down. They're going to pursue familial holiness. They're going to give sacrificially. In the chapters to come in Nehemiah as we close it out in the next two weeks, we're going to learn how that plan works for the people of God and what some of the pitfalls are, so stay tuned for that. But I think just looking at that, Holiness and giving, that's a pretty good plan, isn't it? I mean, isn't that more compelling than most of the plans we typically come up with? Whether it's like going to the next conference or a worship service or a really great book or an uplifting conversation or a retreat of some kind, that that's going to sustain us day to day, month to month, year to year. I think this plan from Nehemiah chapter 10 to sustain these commitments is so much better than I know I typically come up with. And I think most of us typically come up with when we think about sustaining our faith. We've There's a lot to learn here. I mean, when I think about the peaks and valleys of my own faith journey, my walk with Jesus, I have some periods of relative steadiness, right? I have this period of a couple years at the end of high school, beginning of college, where I was consistently encouraged, growing, challenged. I had had made this commitment to to God in a new and fresh way uh, in in my faith one summer, and, and I committed to follow Jesus, to surrender my life to him, to give him my whole life, and I decided to make those commitments known to the, the people around me, much like the Israelites did in Nehemiah 10. And as soon as I made those commitments known to my friends, guess what happened? My friends started distancing themselves from me, right? Who's this crazy guy? One by one, they just sort of distanced themselves from me, and I I went through a period of being intensely lonely. But my commitment to Jesus was, was fresh, and that meant that Every day when I wasn't hanging out with a friend, what was I doing? I was hanging out with Jesus and God's word, right? Because what else was I doing? So each day I was pursuing personal holiness where I was earnestly trying to to live in a way that was pleasing to God. I I tried to to shun any sort of idolatry. I sought to obey the commands of scripture, especially from the voice of Jesus. And daily I was led to give of myself, my my time, my money, my, my loves, my desires, my talents. You see, if I was sort of charting my circumstances, that period of time would have been like the lowest of low points in my life. But actually, because I was sustaining those commitments with holiness and sacrifice, or giving, it was actually a steady high point in my faith. And it's a standard that I've continued to try to live into and replicate in my adult life. So I I learned a ton in that season, but what I learned most of all is that faith... And following Jesus is a daily choice. It's not a status that we have. It's not a position that we, we just kind of put ourselves in. It's an active force that needs daily tending. Think about it this way. If you want to be physically healthy, great looking group here, right? Physically healthy, what do you do? You, you come up with a plan for your physical health. You go to the gym. You do not say, I'm going to go run 50 miles today and that'll cover me for the next month and I can do whatever I want, right? That doesn't work. That's not a plan. If you want your marriage to be healthy, you can't go, oh, we're going to do a marriage retreat once a year and then we'll figure it out the, the other you know, or, uh, 362 days a year. That, it doesn't work that way. You have to commit every single day. If you want to learn an instrument, or you want to play a sport, or you watch something in the Olympics, you're like, I want to get into fencing. Guess what? You have to do that every day or else you're not going to be good at it, right? You're not going to become proficient at it. And it's absolutely no different in our faith. And because our spiritual health is more important than any of those other things, it's something that we have to prioritize. I know you make time for those other parts of your life. Are you making time in this way? Do you have a plan? So here's the the daily lesson that I'm pulling from Nehemiah 10. Maybe this is helpful for you. Every day, we should be focused on getting ourselves right so that we can give ourselves away. Get ourselves right so that we can give ourselves away. We get ourselves right by focusing on personal and family holiness. That's pursuing right decisions, seeking God's wisdom, Fleeing from any idol other than God as the object of our worship. Making it our heart's desire to live a life that's pleasing to God. And then we give ourselves away. We serve others. We give our best to God. We hold on to things loosely. We support uh, our church and, and its mission and God's work in the world. Friends, this is how we sustain our life of faith regardless of circumstances. We wake up every single day and we seek to get ourselves right so that we can give ourselves away that's the daily rhythm and we can't get ourselves right daily if we're not being guided by God's word and we're not experiencing intimacy with Jesus that's why I think part of any plan that we come up with has to have scripture reading and prayer these are the ways that God is most likely to reveal himself to us in terms of how we ought to live how we can get ourselves right aligned with him in that day And if we don't have ourselves aligned with Jesus, we're not going to be able to give ourselves away in the right way. We're going to give ourselves to the wrong things. We're going to give ourselves away in the wrong way with mixed motives and distorted intentions. But if we do that daily work, if we wake up every day and we seek to align our lives with Jesus and we give ourselves over to to God, we're going to sustain the work that God wants to do in our lives and in our hearts. Now, it's good for us to own this morning how very countercultural all of this is. In a culture that says, hey, you do you, as long as the decision feels right, it must be right. What's Jesus called? No, personal holiness. In a culture of moral relativism, Jesus actually offers us a clear path to a moral life through his word. In a culture that's focused on personal position and maintaining me, myself, and I, We're called to live sacrificially, not thinking about our own needs, but thinking about the needs of others. And certainly, Nehemiah 10 gives us sort of a broad description of what giving is. There's lots of different forms of giving in Nehemiah chapter 10. But don't lose sight of the fact that much of it is for the ministry of the temple as the gathering place of worship and identity and mission. So I don't want to lose the opportunity to talk about our giving to church. This is one of those texts that actually talks about that, giving to church. If we're doing the work to get ourselves right on a daily basis, I think we're going to be motivated not only to to give ourselves away, but also to give to God's mission based on the abundance of the blessings that are upon us. And I I just want to speak frankly here. We are so blessed. We're so blessed. Look at where we live. Look at the, the blessings that we have. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be able to meet all of our financial obligations with tons of money to spare that we can give away to somebody else because of God's blessings to us. My sense is that if we, feel, if we fail to meet those financial obligations here, it's not because we don't have money to give, <laughs> but it's because we haven't done the daily work of personal holiness that's going to inevitably motivate us to give freely. So, do you want to sustain the good work that God has done in your life? you want to return if you're in a low place right now do you want to return to a place of spiritual fervency then let me call you this morning to do the same thing that I'm calling myself to do come up with a plan write it down make a public commitment to your goals and work towards them every day it's a daily choice here's what here's what a plan could look like I'm not totally you know done with this for myself but you can steal this if you want to this is what a plan could look like Today, first you have to do the work of getting yourself right. And like I said, that's going to inevitably, I think, for everybody, it needs to include time in scripture, time in prayer. For me, it's huge for me to begin and end each day with God. One of the lines that I live by is, before your feet hit the ground in the morning are your thoughts on God. And is he the last thing you think about before you close your eyes? For me, that also means confessing my sins each day. Every single day, I have sins to confess to God. Impure motives, things I've said, things I've done where i got to go, God, I didn't meet the standard that you set for me today. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And connecting with fellow believers who are going to encourage me in my walk. These are some of the ways that I would put out a plan for myself to go, what does personal holiness look like? And then giving myself away, for me, That's asking God to give me the opportunity to place myself under other people, particularly those who have nothing to offer me. And then encourage daily reflection on all of God's blessings upon me and and go, God, what can I give back? How can I be generous with all that you've given to me? So let me just ask, what's your plan today? How about tomorrow? How about Tuesday? How about Wednesday? Are you going to hope that those high point moments on your timeline are just going to sustain you till the next high point? Or are you going to live into these commitments and do the work to sustain your faith? You do it in so many other areas of your life. I know you do. So come up with a plan for your spiritual life for the sake of Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, you might be wondering, what would Jesus' chart look like? That's an interesting exercise. Well, if you chart out his life, it might look something like this. He's exiled at age three or so to Egypt. That was tough. And then we read about a story of him at age 10, teaching in the temple. He's he's experiencing this nearness with God. The scripture tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature, and favor with God and, and in favor with others. And then there's... Years where we're not really sure what he did in his teenage early 20 years. And then there's those final three years of ministry which had ups and downs. And obviously the crucifixion which goes, you know, down below the floor. And the resurrection which goes up above the ceiling, right? But this isn't Jesus' real chart. This is a chart of his circumstances. Here's what I think Jesus' chart of his spiritual journey actually looked like. Why do I think it looked like that? Because if we look at the life of Jesus, what did he do every single day, all day? He got himself right so he could give himself away, even to the point of giving his very life away on the cross for you and for me. Why? So that we can do the same thing. When we sustain our faith in this way, we're not just like being obedient to Nehemiah 10. We're not just making a wise decision. What we're doing is we're actually modeling our lives after Jesus. And that's the whole goal of this, that our lives would be conformed to him. I can think of no greater calling and no greater opportunity than that. To wake up tomorrow and every day with a plan and say, hey, this was actually Jesus' plan and I'm just borrowing it. We get ourselves right so we can give ourselves away. That's how we invest in a faith that lasts. May it be so for us. As a response, I want to sing another hymn this morning. And I was thinking about this this week of, of how to sort of respond. This hymn is, is a hymn that I, we sang at our wedding after we sang, after we gave our vows, right? We made those promises. We made these vows to one another. And we sang this very really simple hymn, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me. From day to day as a prayer to go, God, we need your help. We know that if it's up to us alone to sustain the life of faith, we're in trouble. But I want to encourage you as a response just to, to sit and to sing along as you kind of learn the melody if you don't know it. Sing along as a prayer. We're going to sing the first three verses. I want to pray for us and then we'll close with the final three. So let's sing together. we ask for your help to sustain the good work that you want to do in our lives would you give us your mind may the mind of Jesus Christ live in us from day to day so that we might have the wisdom to know what it means to align our lives each and every day with you and that we might have the courage to give ourselves fully to you Lord we see this in the life of your son Jesus and we desire to follow him Even in this, would you help us, Lord? We pray. Amen.
1: May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing. This is. to invite you.